Relationships are endlessly fascinating. I'm not talking about romantic relationships such as if you've had a romantic partner. I'm talking about relationships, period. Relationships with our parents, even the absent ones. Relationships with friends, coworkers, significant others, our favorite librarian, the one guy we see on our daily commute, or the woman who gives us our drink every day. These are all people who enter our lives, no matter how briefly, and have the ability to shape our thinking. They can be miraculous, healing, redemptive, or the thing we need to heal from. Identity cannot exist without relationship. This is something we pointed out in the last episode, but how does this connect to Christianity? Well, the answer is something that can make quite a few people uncomfortable. Christianity is not meant to be about religion. It's meant to be about a relationship. It's this truth that makes it beautiful. In this episode, we will be exploring the complexity of relationships and their influence on our faith. I'm Nicole Dominguez, and this is Faith Reconstructed. Our faith, I like to define it basically as trust in action, right? And without trust, uh, there can be no healthy or real connection or relationship. There needs to be some level of, I trust this person's words when they say they care about me. I trust that when I'm not with them, they will continue to care about me, right? And to value our relationship. So essentially, without faith, there is no healthy relationship. This is Giselle Ortiz. She is a counselor specializing in trauma who has dedicated her life to bridging the gap between biblical truth and cognitive behavioral therapy. Her observations on faith and relationships are exposing on many levels. Just as she stated, relationships require faith, and faith requires trust. Relationships demand intimacy. However, that can be risky if your experience with relationships has been painful. This ends up shaping our worldview and our view of God. In the last few episodes, and let's be real, almost all the episodes after, there is a focus on God wanting a relationship with us. For some, this is a relief. But for others, it can be a reason to back away. You see, if we aren't familiar with healthy relationships, that will be an aspect that shapes our worldview. Humans, our brains are wired to make meaning out of every circumstance situation, right? So we're constantly creating a story in our minds of who we are, what the world is around us, who the different characters in our story are, right? The different people we interact with. So our worldview is the filter, if you will, with which we view everything else, right? So if, for example, I grew up believing that God was harsh, right? Or the power that be is um, very hard to please and constantly assessing and criticizing whatever, then that's going to affect the way I carry out my day. I will probably be a lot more anxious, um, a lot less likely to take any type of risk that could maybe incur wrath or make a mistake, right? Maybe this was how you were introduced to God. Or maybe you were exposed to external sources that formed that picture. This image of a harsh God could be the very reason you left the church and still harbor fear and resentment towards this quote-unquote God. 
Maybe this was the image given to you through church or your relatives and you just thought it was normal. Your connection to God was motivated by fear, a New King James version of verses that stated, fear God, making wrath God's main motivation. And any mention of him as a God of love was a dangerous softening of his character. Faith in God equals fear-filled anxiety. Let's like compare it to someone who believes God is loving, that they know and they feel securely loved, right? And, and that they belong. Then they're probably going to approach that same day with a sense of freedom, with a sense of hope, with a sense of curiosity, right? So Eric Erickson talks about like the different developmental stages that a child goes through. The first one is trust versus mistrust, right? And that's like the first building block on which all the others will just follow suit. So our worldview is actually incredibly important. And that's really where we need to start if we want to make any type of change in our lifestyle. I enjoy literature and cinema. Most of my favorite books and movies don't have a distinct plot, but are character-driven. It is the characters that are creating the narrative, building the story. We're drawn to story. And if you think about it, our worldview is our internal narrative. With the narrative set in place, the characters of our life either build or are viewed through that lens. These narratives are the foundation for our reality. Trust versus mistrust, freedom versus fear, love versus wrath. These are the opposing sides on either end of the razor's edge that are our worldviews. By the way, everyone has a worldview, but not every worldview is religious in nature. So in an episode about relationships, why are we talking about worldviews? Well, the two are connected. We shape our view of the world through observation and interaction. If we see loving relationships and healthy interactions, we're more inclined to a worldview that leans towards optimism. I grew up in a loving home with parents who loved each other and my sister and I. My anxiety was a roadblock to my belief in God's loving faithfulness, but I could pull from the love and safety I felt in my home, and it gave me context for the depths of God's love. Compare this with a college friend of mine. She experienced neglect, emotional abuse, and the injustice of the foster care system. Her example of a father was one that was judgmental, manipulative, and controlling. Therefore, her image of a heavenly father was no different. There will always be exceptions to this, but the point is, the nature of our attachments influence us and in how we view God. I, I couldn't help but think when Jesus references God as a good father in Matthew 7, 11, right? Where he's like, you know, if you who are evil know how to give your kids good gifts, how much more your father in heaven. And I don't think it's a coincidence that God um, defines himself uh, in the role as a father, right? Because when we have a secure attachment with our heavenly father, we're less likely to resort to behaviors or thoughts that are motivated by insecurity, defense mechanisms, self-centeredness, right? Preservation, all that kind of stuff. When Giselle used the word father to describe God, you might have leaned back a bit. Some of you might be uncomfortable with the use of familial language used in Christianity. If your example of family was not healthy, then hesitation is understandable. If my only example of relationships and family is messy, toxic, or problematic, why would I want a divine version of that as an all-powerful God? 
Suddenly, the image of God the Father as love, a devoted, reliable deity, might become scary, threatening, and overwhelming. Especially if you were raised in a church environment where these familial phrases, meant for loving security, were potentially used for manipulative subjugation. Allow me to interject something. If you did not grow up with secure attachments, that does not disqualify you from having a healthy relationship with God. In fact, it's a great opportunity to see Yahweh at work and observe the lengths he will go to to repair the pain. This kind of goes back to like our brains are wired to apply meaning to every circumstance, right? And if we never go back to repair some of those emotional wounds that we have received, we will even unintentionally, right? We, we don't have that, that malicious intent to hurt someone else, to hurt our children or whatever, but it will come up because it was unresolved. And when an emotional wound is unresolved, we are reactionary, right? So um, dysregulated, we'll say, emotionally dysregulated. So we, we don't have full control. And so then when we get triggered or pushed, that button gets pushed there, we just react without thinking really. So when I think of generations, especially um, our grandparents, maybe even some of our parents, they grew up in a society where mental health wasn't really, uh, I want to say acknowledged (laughs) even, right? Or even uh, like encouraged to get to um, see a therapist or to work on your emotional health. So all of these wounds that were received in their lives a lot of them have gone unresolved, right? Because if you don't have that support system around you, that emotional support system to help process through, with every wound, we receive a message, right? And if we don't like resolve that message or speak truth into that message, that message becomes embedded in our identity. And here it is again. The intersection of relationships, internal narrative, and identity – all bleeding into one another. If you haven't identified it already, what Giselle is talking about is generational trauma. But what if you didn't have generational trauma? No, this episode is still for you. Because you may not have inherited generational trauma, but you have inherited generational mindsets, such as response patterns and, yes, worldviews. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pastor Peter Scazzaro shares how the generational pain of his family affected his faith, and the overcorrection and suppression of broken family relationships caused him to mature spiritually but remain emotionally underdeveloped. There are so many scriptures and spiritual tools that help with healing past wounds, verses affirming a new life in Christ, and aspects of that new beginning offering liberation, such as active prayer, reading God's word, and being involved in a healthy Christian community. But we can't forget God wants us to be whole. Scazzaro observes many dedicated believers use an active spiritual life as an excuse not to address the emotional conflicts that create compartmentalization between their faith and their relationships. Spiritual maturity and emotional maturity are inextricably linked. Both must be developed with patience, grace, and God's divine honesty. The way our body and our mind are so intersected, interconnected is, is like divine. It's beautiful. But, um, that also affects our physical health, right? So that's why we start seeing people who struggle with anxiety also show other physical symptoms or depression, right? 
basically, if we do not put in the work to address those misconceptions of God, that is what we will pass down because how we believe is how we will behave. Brick by brick, word by word, sermon by sermon, our image of God is built. Remember the domino effect? If you happen to be raised in a home or environment that had an or else approach to Christianity, making God out to be a taskmaster who was looking for a reason to punish you for poor behavior so you better toe the line, everything becomes a sin. And from that, a one-dimensional image of a vengeful God is built. From that, feelings of shame and resentment form and are associated with God and Christianity. If that image was taught to you, firstly, I'm sorry. And secondly, they were probably teaching an image of God that wasn't pulled from the scriptures, but was an outcropping of a misunderstanding which was later projected onto Christianity. I'm not saying that all generational trauma is religious in nature, but it is often relational in nature. In the same way, addressing the deep-seated pain from generations isn't the result of one prayer, but a continuous surrender to God partnered with professional counseling. So when we believe that God's love is conditional, then we have an insecure attachment with God, right? So that could be either anxious or avoidant. So I'm not going to interact with God much at all, or I'm just constantly on edge, walking on eggshells, right? Around God. So the first step is we need to stop trying to pin our perception of love onto God. Because we then take in that meaning of what love is. And it's not just with God that we start trying to earn favor, right? We're hustling for our worth with everyone around us. So we need to get to the root of it and try and and ask ourselves, okay, what is love really, right? Trying to approach scripture unbiased to see how God himself defines love. It's kind of like in um, when there's conflict between two people, and one is making assumptions, right? Well, it's because I know you feel this way about me. And the other person's like, when did I ever say that, right? You need to go to the person directly to make sure that you have your information right. Same idea here with God. We need to kind of just approach it unbiased, curious, right? Saying, all right, let's see what this is, really. Rediscovering it for ourselves. And I mean, I think Ty Gibson makes an excellent point on how the Godhead operates in a completely other-centered reality. Giselle is referencing Chapter 18 of Ty Gibson's book, The Sonship of Christ. Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, and multiple chapters within Desire of Ages and Steps to Christ by Ellen G. White also address the selflessness of God's love. The references above confirm that relationally, three is the essential number for love— In a relationship unit, like friendships or families, if it is more than three, there is a risk of pairing off, losing intimacy. Any less, and it becomes isolated, two people caught up in just the other person. The Godhead is a trinity made up of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The books above, as well as resources like the Bible Project, do a better job than I could of explaining the trinity, so I encourage you to check them out. The Trinity might seem like a concept too complex to connect to us as non-divine entities, but I invite you to focus on how a complete relationship, making up the singular being of the Godhead, which is love itself, created us. Ty states it like this, God is love, 
Therefore, God is an interpersonal relationship, and that interpersonal relationship is necessarily composed of three persons, since love, to be perfectly selfless, must both receive and defer attention. Love itself is a selfless relationship meant to foster peace and belonging. When we are secure in the idea that we are unconditionally loved and will never be abandoned or rejected by a creator, we are free to lay down our defense mechanisms, which are the main obstacle to deep connection, aka vulnerability. So we're not going to be able to feel vulnerable until we're ready to lay down our defense mechanisms. This can seem too touchy-feely for those who believe that such vulnerability is a form of weakness. But believe me, it's not. Both the Bible and psychology, as seen through the works of Brene Brown, align on the reality that productive vulnerability, aka doing the work of emotional maturity, improves faith and relationships. I will say this takes time. It's not just going to be a, you know, three-day fast (laughs) or prayer session. You know what I mean? It's you're basically having to rewire parts of your brain that have decided this is what we believe, right? We have to go back. And if this has been your whole life that you believe this way, it will take time to reframe and rewire. So we know this is necessary, but how do we begin? Uh, For me, the first thing is we need clarity. So a lot of times when we're dealing with emotions, there's a lot of, um, it's just feels so vague ambiguity. Like, I don't know. I just feel this way. I don't know why the feeling just came. Right. So I want to be clear because we need to have a baseline. So what are the specific messages you're currently believing about yourself and about people in general in the church, right. Or in your family. So we try and get as specific as possible core beliefs, right. That's where I try to go. And normally what happens is there will be a visceral reaction. We aren't aware of it until we, we take time to really just process it. But when we hear it, right? So like, I am not worth the effort or something like that. We, our body will react and it'll tell us like, some people will just start crying or they'll start getting kind of shaky, whatever. And, I, and I'll tell them, that's probably your body telling you that's what it is, right? Let's write it down. So definitely the first one is get clarity. And then we kind of organize our thoughts because that helps kind of reduce the shame too. Always there's going to be a sense of shame. Well, then it must be me, right? Because I I can't fit in or whatever. And when we start to get that understanding of, oh, this is how it works. My feelings don't just pop out of nowhere, right? I'm not crazy. It's, there's a pattern. Once again we see the pesky lie of shame crop up. You see, how we identify ourselves will affect our relationships. But here's the amazing part. When you give yourself the grace to dive in and, yes, do the hard work, there is peace. You are deconstructing lies about yourself and giving God space to reconstruct in love. That also helps bring that sense of uh, compassion towards our own, our own hearts Right. So before we even start that, though, I make sure that they have a support system because this this can be pretty heavy work. Um, It's emotionally exhausting, which also causes physical exhaustion. So people may get headaches, um, fatigue. Right. 
uh, feeling just overwhelmed. So making sure that they have a good support system and they have the self-regulation activities that they can engage in after the session. Okay, so once we have the baseline, the core beliefs, right? We start processing through some of the emotional wounds that the person has received. So we go into the belief category and we start to reframe those negative messages attached to those wounds. And I recommend doing this with a therapist who has more skill, right? (laughs) So what we do, especially if you want to do faith-based counseling, um, I incorporate scripture, right? So we take that list of negative thoughts. I am not worth the effort, right? I am alone. I am unworthy. We then find scripture. Well, who does God say you are? And it is a choice. So our belief, we need to actively choose it over and over and over again, right? Until our brain clicks. Not everyone has trauma. Not everyone has had to endure unimaginable pain. That itself is a blessing, but if there's any hesitation about Giselle's observations, remember that emotional health and spiritual health are linked. Sometimes the best way to check your faith is by looking at your relationships. Take the time to ask your friends, family, your partner, and most of all, your God, if you have any patterns that could be addressed. Then, take the time to address them, not just through action, but by addressing your internal narrative. I think that's what, that's part of what Paul references in Romans 12, you know, one and two, where he says, you know, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. God is for our restoration, right? He wants to redeem every part of us. That includes our thoughts. That includes the messages that we have believed. So definitely once we get through that, um, process of reframing some of those negative thoughts, then it's the next hard part, which is choosing vulnerability over our comfort and safety behaviors and consistently practicing vulnerable connection. And that sometimes feels like death (laughs) because we don't like that feeling of I'm totally exposed, right? This person could really hurt me right now if they wanted to, but without vulnerability, we're not going to be able to find true healing. Vulnerability is a key ingredient to intimacy, and intimacy is what strengthens relationships. Allowing God and a faith-informed counselor to help you claim your identity as a child of God who is worthy of giving and receiving authentic relationships allows for better discernment on who is deserving of a space in your life. This can apply to finding the right counselor, Be aware of some that may be reinforcing problematic narratives such as shame or aren't inclined to grace and practical growth. Bathe it in prayer and find someone you feel safe with. In the end, working on emotional growth deepens and enriches relationships with loved ones, giving you the strength to step back from unhealthy relationships. When we acknowledge vulnerability in our faith, we can finally tap into the intimacy God created for us to have with him. There's this painting I saw online of the the father running towards the prodigal son, right? And his expression, this was years ago. And I remember just having an emotional reaction to the father's expression. I'm like, oh my word, what longing, right? And loving in, in in his face. 
our status as his children, his sons and daughters. We're so secure in that, right? That we can go boldly, like Paul tells us, approach the throne boldly and say, Lord, you know, hey, dad, you know, it's me, right? Hey, I'm having this issue here. Can you um, tell me what to do? What are we going to do, right? We're going to work together instead of like, I got to fix this before I even talk to God about it, you know? And and it's a journey, I want to say, like God reveals himself in in ways when we're ready to actually accept it. God has provided us a model of the relationship he created for us to have with him through Adam and Eve before the fall, and through Christ and his intimacy with God and his connection with the disciples. Remember when we mentioned shame in the last episode? The internal narrative can be a barrier between us and pursuing a deeper relationship with God and others, so when we confront the false narrative feeding shame, we can finally rest. There is a, a theory in, in the psychology world, and it talks about this parts theory. And, and it says how when we're little, we develop this part in us, right, that is all about our protection. But because it's when we're young, little kids, oftentimes they, just, they have the black and white, right, type of thinking. They, and so it's more extreme in nature. And so if we really look at a lot of the shaming, it's based of fear of being hurt, right? And so when we start doing that work, that shame work, we start to unearth, right? And reveal what, what are the fears here? And when we can lay those fears down, right? Which God calls us to do anyways, lay it down. The opposite of fear is trust, right? We trust that God has it. He's got me. But now it's time to lay it down, right? Because we, in that moment, we did not believe God was enough, right? So it's just kind of re- approaching all these areas in our lives. Um, also understanding that we are in a battlefield where it's, it's not uh, Eden. <laughs> we are under attack and the devil yeah. comes after us most in our minds, right? Oh, yeah. He comes after us. And also with that awareness, being very intentional in then how we manage our emotions and our thoughts. If you are someone who has had painful experiences with relationships and think they define you, please let me offer you this reality. The pain of previous relationships do not have to define you. Relationship as a concept plays a vital role, but specific relationships with specific people do not have to be the sum total of who you are for the rest of your life. For those who have been hurt, I know it might be difficult. Your hesitation is valid. The truth is, we can't just deconstruct our faith. Through guidance and patience, we must be deconstructed with the help of God, healthy relationships, and therapy. Only then can we be reconstructed by love itself in order to allow us to stand in the fullness of how we were created to be. Starting over for you may not be as heavy as breaking generational cycles, Maybe it's asking God to show you how you can strengthen your relationship with others and restore your relationship with Him. You've been listening to Faith Reconstructed. Each episode is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nicole Dominguez, edited by Katrina Simbaku, logo design and social media by Chelsea Ernina, tech and equipment support by Steve Husett and James Gigante, project support by Heather Moore, Special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening.
an Adventist Learning Community podcast.